I didn't really want to write another book on war. Uh, my first one, War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning, was not cathartic. Uh, was extremely difficult uh, to cope with and uh, process. Uh, but the kind of sickening euphoria over the war in Ukraine raised the familiar bile. Uh, and so I have this book here. <clears throat> Preemptive war, whether in Iraq or Ukraine, is a war crime. It does not matter if the war is launched on the basis of lies and fabrications, as was the case in Iraq, or because of the breaking of a series of agreements with Russia, including the promise by Washington not to extend NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, not to deploy thousands of NATO troops in Eastern Europe, not to meddle in the internal affairs of nations on Russia's border, and the refusal to implement the Minsk II peace agreement. This provocation, which includes establishing a NATO missile base 100 miles from Russia's border, was foolish and highly irresponsible. It never made geopolitical sense. The invasion of Ukraine would, I expect, never have happened if these promises had been kept. Russia has every right to feel threatened, betrayed, and angry. But to understand is not to condone. The invasion of Ukraine under post-Nuremberg laws is a criminal war of aggression. I know the instrument of war. War is not politics by other means. It is demonic. I spent two decades as a war correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans, where I covered the wars in Bosnia and Kosovo. I carry within me the ghosts of dozens of those swallowed up in the violence, including my close friend, Reuters correspondent Kurt Schork, who was killed in an ambush in Sierra Leone with another friend, Miguel Gil Moreno. I know the chaos and disorientation of war, the constant uncertainty and confusion. In a firefight, you are only aware of what is happening a few feet around you. You desperately and not always successfully struggle to figure out where the fighting, the firing is coming from in the hopes you can avoid being hit. I have felt the helplessness and the paralyzing fear which years later descend on me like a freight train in the middle of the night, leaving me wrapped in coils of terror, my heart racing, my body dripping with sweat. I have heard the wails of those convulsed by grief as they clutch the bodies of friends and family, including children. I hear them still. It does not matter the language, Spanish, Arabic, Hebrew, Dinka, Serbo-Croatian, Albanian, Ukrainian, Russian. Death cuts through the linguistic barriers. I know what wounds look like, legs blown off, heads imploded into a bloody, pulpy mass, gaping holes in stomachs, pools of blood, 
cries of the dying, sometimes for their mothers, and the smell, the smell of death, the supreme sacrifice made for flies and maggots. I was beaten by Iraqi and Saudi secret police. I was taken prisoner by the Contras in Nicaragua who radioed back to their base in Honduras to see if they should kill me, and again in Basra after the first Gulf War, never knowing if I would be executed under constant guard and often without food, drinking out of mud puddles. The primary lesson in war is that we, as distinct individuals, do not matter. We become numbers, fodder, objects. Life, once precious and sacred, becomes meaningless, sacrificed to the insatiable appetite of Mars. No one in wartime is exempt. We were expendable, Eugene Sledge wrote of his experiences as a Marine in the South Pacific in World War II. It was difficult to accept. We come from a nation and a culture that values life and the individual. To find oneself in a situation where your life seems of little value is the ultimate in loneliness. It is a humbling experience. The landscape of war is hallucinogenic. It defies comprehension. You have no concept of time in a firefight, a few minutes, a few hours. War in an instant obliterates homes and communities, all that was once familiar, and leaves behind smoldering ruins and a trauma that you carry for the rest of your life. You cannot comprehend what you see. I have tasted enough of war, enough of my own fear. My body turned to jelly. To know that war is always evil, the purest expression of death, dressed up in patriotic cant about liberty and democracy and sold to the naive as a ticket to glory, honor, and courage. It is a toxic and seductive elixir. Those who survive, as Kurt Vonnegut wrote, struggle afterwards to reinvent themselves and their universe, which, on some level, will never make sense again. War destroys all systems that sustain and nurture life, familial, economic, cultural, political, environmental, and social. Once war begins, no one, even those nominally in charge of waging war, can guess what will happen, how the war will develop, how it can drive armies and nations towards suicidal folly. There are no good wars, none. And this includes World War II, which has been sanitized and mythologized to mendaciously celebrate American heroism, purity, and goodness. If truth is the first casualty in war, ambiguity is the second. The bellicose rhetoric embraced and amplified by the American press, demonizing Vladimir Putin and elevating the Ukrainians to the status of demigods, demanding more robust military intervention along with the crippling sanctions meant to bring down Putin's government. 
is infantile and dangerous. The Russian media narrative is as simplistic as ours. There were no discussions about pacifism in the basements in Sarajevo when we were being hit with hundreds of Serbian shells a day and under constant sniper fire. It made sense to defend the city. It made sense to kill or be killed. The Bosnian Serb soldiers in the Drina Valley, Vukovar, and Srebrenica had amply demonstrated their capacity for murderous rampages, including the gunning down of hundreds of soldiers and civilians and the wholesale rape of women and girls. But this did not save any of the defenders in Sarajevo from the poison of violence, the soul-destroying force that is war. I knew a Bosnian soldier who heard a sound behind a door while patrolling on the outskirts of Sarajevo. He fired a burst from his AK-47 through the door. A delay of a few seconds in combat can mean death. When he opened the door, he found the bloody remains of a 12-year-old girl. His daughter was 12. He never recovered. Only the autocrats and politicians who dream of empire and global hegemony, of the godlike power that comes with wielding armies, warplanes, and fleets, along with the merchants of death, whose business floods countries with weapons, profit from war. The expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe has earned Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Analytic Services, Huntington Ingalls, Humana, BAA Systems, and L3 Harris billions in profits. The stoking of conflict in Ukraine will earn them billions more. The European Union has allocated hundreds of millions of euros to purchase weapons for Ukraine. Germany will almost triple its own defense budget for 2023. The Biden administration has asked Congress to provide over $50 billion to Ukraine in weapons and aid. The permanent war economy operates outside the laws of supply and demand. It is the root of the two-decade-long quagmire in the Middle East, and it is the root of the conflict with Moscow. The merchants of death are satanic. The more corpses they produce, the more their bank accounts swell. They will cash in on this conflict, one that now flirts with nuclear holocaust. The same cabal of war-mongering pundits, foreign policy specialists, and government officials year after year, decade after decade, smugly dodge responsibility for the military fiascos they orchestrate. They are protean, shifting adroitly with the political winds, moving from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party and then back again, mutating from cold warriors to neocons to liberal interventionists. Pseudo-intellectuals, they exude a cloying Ivy League snobbery as they sell perpetual fear and a racist worldview where the lesser breeds of the earth only understand violence. They are pimps of war, puppets of the Pentagon, a state within a state, and the defense contractors who lavishly 
fund their think tanks. Project for the New American Century, American Enterprise Institute, Foreign Policy Initiative, Institute for the Study of War, Atlantic Council, and Brookings Institution. Like some mutant strain of an antibiotic-resistant bacteria, they cannot be vanquished. It does not matter how wrong they are, how absurd their theories, how many times they lie or denigrate other cultures and societies as uncivilized, or how many murderous military interventions go bad. They are immovable props, the parasitic mandarins of power that are vomited up in the dying days of any empire, including ours, leaping from one self-defeating catastrophe to the next. I reported on the suffering, misery, and murderous rampages these shills for war engineered and funded. My first encounter with them was in Central America. Elliot Abrams, convicted of providing misleading testimony to Congress on the Iran-Contra affair and later pardoned by President H.W. Bush so he could return to government to sell us the Iraq War, and Robert Kagan, director of the State Department's public diplomacy office in Latin America, were propagandists for the brutal military regimes in El Salvador and Guatemala, as well as the rapists and homicidal thugs that made up the rogue Contra forces fighting the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, which they illegally funded. Their job was to discredit our reporting. They and their coterie of fellow war lovers went on to push for the expansion of NATO in Central and Eastern Europe. They are cheerleaders for the apartheid state of Israel, justifying its war crimes against Palestinians and myopically conflating Israel's interests with our own. They advocated for airstrikes in Serbia, calling for the U.S. to, quote, take out Slobodan Milosevic. They were the authors of the policy to invade Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and Libya. Robert Kagan and William Crystal with their typical cluelessness, wrote in April 2002 that, quote, the road that leads to real security and peace is the road that runs through Baghdad. We saw how that worked out. That road led to the dissolution of Iraq, the destruction of its civilian infrastructure, including the obliteration of 18 of 20 electricity generating plants, and nearly all the water pumping and sanitation systems during a 43-day period when 90,000 tons of bombs were rained down on the country, the rise of radical jihadist groups throughout the region, and the proliferation of failed states. The war in Iraq, along with the humiliating defeat in Afghanistan, shredded the illusion of US military and global hegemony. It also inflicted on Iraqis who had nothing to do with the attacks of 9-11, wholesale slaughter of civilians, the torture and sexual humiliation of Iraqi prisoners, and the ascendancy of Iran as the preeminent power in the Middle East. They continue to call for a war with Iran, with Fred Kagan stating, quote, there is nothing we can do short of attacking to force Iran to give up its nuclear weapons, they pushed for the overthrow of President Nicolas Maduro after trying to do the same to Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, 
and they have targeted Danielle Ortega, their old nemesis in Nicaragua. They embrace a pure blind nationalism that prohibits them from seeing the world from any perspective other than their own. They know nothing about the machinery of war, its consequences, or its inevitable blowback. They know nothing about the peoples and cultures they target for violent regeneration. They believe in the divine right to impose their quote unquote values on others by force. Fiasco after fiasco, and now they are stoking a war with Russia. The nationalist is by definition an ignoramus, Yugoslav writer Danilo Kish observed. Nationalism is the line of least resistance, the easy way. The nationalist is untroubled. He knows or thinks he knows what his values are, his. That's to say, national. That's to say, the values of the nation he belongs to, ethical and political. He is not interested in others. They are no concern of his hell. It's other people, other nations, another tribe. They don't even need investigating. The nationalist sees other people in his own image, nationalists. The Biden administration is filled with these ignoramuses, including Joe Biden. Victoria Nuland, the wife of Robert Kagan, serves as Biden's undersecretary of state for political affairs. Anthony Blinken is the secretary of state. Jack Sullivan is national security advisor. They come from this cabal of moral and intellectual trolls that includes Kimberly Kagan, the wife of Fred Kagan, who founded the Institute for the Study of War, William Crystal, Max Boot, Gary Schmidt, Richard Pearl, Douglas Fife, David Frum, and others. Many were once staunch Republicans, or like Newland, served in Republican and Democratic administrations. Newland was the principal deputy foreign policy advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. They are united by the demand for larger and larger defense budgets and an ever-expanding military. Julian Benda called these courtiers to power the self-made barbarians of the intelligentsia. They once railed against liberal weaknesses and appeasement, but they swiftly migrated to the Democratic Party rather than support Donald Trump, who showed no desire to start a conflict with Russia and who called the invasion of Iraq a big fat mistake. Besides, as they correctly pointed out, Hillary Clinton was a fellow neocon, and liberals wonder why nearly half the electorate who revile these arrogant, unelected power brokers as they should, voted for Trump. These ideologues did not see the corpses of their victims, I did, including children. Every dead body I stood over in Guatemala, El Salvador, Nicaragua, Gaza, Iraq, Sudan, Yemen, or Kosovo, month after month, year after year, exposed their moral bankruptcy, their intellectual dishonesty, and their sick bloodlust. They did not serve in the military, their children do not serve in the military, but they eagerly ship young American men and women to fight and die for their self-delusional dreams of empire and American hegemony. Or, as in Ukraine, they provide the weaponry and logistical support so Ukrainians and Russians can bleed in perpetuity. 
Historical time stopped for them with the end of World War II. The overthrow of democratically elected governments by the US during the Cold War in Indonesia, Guatemala, the Congo, Iran, and Chile, where the CIA oversaw the assassination of the commander-in-chief of the army, General Rene Schneider, and President Salvador Allende, the Bay of Pigs, the atrocities and war crimes that defined the wars in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, even the disasters they manufactured in the Middle East, have disappeared into the black hole of their collective historical amnesia. American global domination, they claim, is benign, a force for good, benevolent hegemony. The world, the late Charles Krauthammer insisted, welcomes our power. All enemies from Saddam Hussein to Vladimir Putin are the new Hitler. All US interventions are a fight for freedom that make the world a safer place. All refusals to bomb and occupy another country are a 1938 Munich moment, a pathetic retreat from confronting evil by the new Neville Chamberlain. We do have enemies abroad, but our most dangerous enemy is within. The warmongers built a campaign against a country, build a campaign against a country such as Iraq or Russia, and then wait for a crisis, they call it the next Pearl Harbor, to justify the unjustifiable. In 1998, William Crystal and Robert Kagan, along with a dozen other prominent neoconservatives, wrote an open letter to President Bill Clinton denouncing his policy of containment in Iraq as a failure and demanding that he go to war to overthrow Saddam Hussein. To continue the, quote, course of weakness and drift, they warned, was to put our interests and our future at risk. Huge majorities in Congress, Republican and Democrat, rushed to pass the Iraq Liberation Act. Few Democrats or Republicans dared to be seen as soft on national security. The act stated that the US government would work to, quote, remove the regime headed by Saddam Hussein and authorized $99 million towards that goal, some of it used to fund Ahmed Chalabi's Iraqi National Congress that would become instrumental in disseminating the fabrications and lies used to justify the Iraq war during the administration of George W. Bush. The attacks of 9-11 gave the war party its opening, first with Afghanistan, then Iraq. Kraut, Hammer, who knew nothing about the Muslim world, wrote, quote, the way to tame the Arab street is not with appeasement and sweet sensitivity, but with raw power and victory. The elementary truth that seems to elude the experts again and again is that power is its own reward. Victory changes everything, psychologically above all. The psychology in the Middle East is now one of fear and deep respect for American power. Now is the time to use it. Removing Saddam Hussein from power, Crystal Crowed would, quote, transform the political landscape of the Middle East. It did, of course, but not in ways that benefited the United States. The lust for apocalyptic global war, they lust for apocalyptic global war. Fred Kagan, the brother of Robert, a military historian, wrote in 1999 that, quote, 
America must be able to fight Iraq and North Korea and also be able to fight genocide in the Balkans and elsewhere without compromising its ability to fight two major regional conflicts and it must be able to contemplate war with China or Russia some considerable but not infinite time from now. They believe violence magically solves all disputes, even the Israel-Palestine morass. In a bizarre interview immediately after 9-11, Donald Kagan, the Yale classicist and right-wing ideologue, the father of Robert and Fred Kagan, called along with his son Fred for the deployment of US troops in Gaza so we could, quote, take the war to these people. They long demanded the stationing of NATO troops in Ukraine with Robert Kagan saying that we, quote, need to not worry that the problem is our encirclement rather than Russian ambitions. We, we need to not worry that the problem is our encirclement rather than Russian ambitions. His wife, Victoria Nuland, was outed in a leaked phone conversation in 2014 with the US ambassador to Ukraine, Jeffrey Pyatt, disparaging the EU and plotting to remove the lawfully elected president, Viktor Yanichenkov, and install compliant Ukrainian politicians in power, most of whom did eventually take power. They lobbied for US troops to be sent to Syria to assist quote unquote moderate rebels seeking to overthrow Bashir al-Assad. Instead, the intervention spawned the caliphate. The US ended up bombing the very forces they had armed, becoming Assad's de facto air force. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, like the attacks of 9-11, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Putin, like everyone else they target, only understands force. We can, they assure us, militarily bend Russia to our will. It is true that acting firmly in 2008 or 2014 would have meant risking conflict, Robert Kagan wrote in Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. But Washington is risking conflict now. Russia's ambitions have created an inherently dangerous situation. It is better for the United States to risk confrontation with belligerent powers when they are in the early stages of ambition and expansion, not after they have already consolidated substantial gains. Russia may possess a fearful nuclear arsenal, but the risk of Moscow using it is not higher now than it would have been in 2008 or 2014 if the West had intervened then and it has always been extraordinarily small. Putin was never going to obtain his objectives by destroying himself and his country along with much of the rest of the world. In short, don't worry about going to war with Russia. Putin won't use the bomb. I do not know if these people are stupid or cynical or both. They are the useful idiots of the war industry. They are never dropped from the networks. They rotate in and out of power, parked in places like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institute, before being called back into government. They are as welcome in the Obama or Biden White House as the Bush White House. The Cold War for them never ended. The world remains binary, us and them, good and evil, and they are never held accountable. When one military intervention goes up in flames, they are ready to promote the next. These Dr. Strangeloves, if we don't stop them, 
will terminate life as we know it on the planet. The ruling class divides the world into worthy and unworthy victims. Those we are allowed to pity, such as Ukrainians, enduring the hell of modern warfare, and those whose suffering is minimized, dismissed, or ignored. The terror we and our allies carry out against Iraqi, Palestinian, Syrian, Libyan, Somali, and Yemeni civilians is part of the regrettable cost of war. We, echoing the empty promises from Moscow, claim we do not target civilians. Rulers always paint their militaries as humane, there to serve and protect. Collateral damage happens, but it is regrettable. This lie can only be sustained among those who are unfamiliar with the explosive ordnance and large kill zones of missiles, iron fragmentation bombs, mortar, artillery, tank shells, and belt-fed machine guns. This bifurcation into worthy and unworthy victims, as Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky pointed out in Manufacturing Consent, is a key component of propaganda, especially in war. The Russian-speaking population in Ukraine to Moscow are worthy victims. Russia is their savior. The 7.6 million refugees and the millions more Ukrainian families cowering in basements, car parks, and subway stations are unworthy Nazis. Worthy victims allow citizens to see themselves as empathetic, compassionate, and just. Worthy victims are an effective tool to demonize the aggressor. They are used to obliterate nuance and ambiguity. Mention the provocations carried out by the Western Alliance with the expansion of NATO and the missile batteries in Eastern Europe, the U.S. involvement in the 2014 ouster of Yanukovych, which led to the civil war in the east of Ukraine between Russian-backed separatists and Ukraine's army, a conflict that has claimed tens of thousands of lives, and you are dismissed as a Putin apologist. It is to taint the sainthood of the worthy victims, and by extension ourselves. We are good, they are evil. Worthy victims are used not only to express sanctimonious outrage, but to stoke self-adulation and a poisonous nationalism. The case, the cause, becomes sacred, a religious crusade. Fact-based evidence is abandoned, as it was during the calls to invade Iraq. Charlatans, liars, con artists, fake defectors and opportunists become experts used to fuel the conflict. Celebrities who, like the powerful, carefully orchestrate their public image pour out their hearts to worthy victims. Hollywood stars such as George Clooney made trips to Darfur to denounce the war crimes being committed by Khartoum. At the same time, the US was daily killing scores of civilians in Iraq and Afghanistan. The war in Iraq was as savage as the slaughter in Darfur, but to express outrage at what was happening to unworthy victims was to become branded as the enemy Saddam Hussein's attacks on the Kurds, considered worthy victims, saw an international outcry. While Israeli attacks on the Palestinians, subjected to relentless bombing campaigns by the Israeli Air Force and its artillery and tank units with hundreds of dead and wounded, was at best an afterthought. At the height of Stalin's purges in the 1930s, worthy victims were the Republicans battling the fascists in the Spanish Civil War, 
Soviet citizens were mobilized to send aid and assistance. Unworthy victims were the millions of people Stalin executed, sometimes after tawdry show trials and sent to the gulags. While I was reporting from El Salvador in 1984, a Catholic priest was murdered by the communist regime in Poland. His death was used to excoriate the Polish communist government, a stark contrast to the response of the Reagan administration to the rape and murder of four Catholic missionaries in 1980 in El Salvador by the Salvadoran National Guard. Reagan, the Reagan administration sought to blame the three nuns and lay worker for their own deaths. Jean Kirkpatrick, Reagan's ambassador to the UN, said the nuns were not just nuns, the nuns were also political activists. Secretary of State Alexander Haig speculated that perhaps they ran a roadblock. For the Reagan administration, the murdered churchwomen were unworthy victims. The right-wing government in El Salvador, armed and backed by the United States, joked at the time, Haz patria mata un cura, be a patriot, kill a priest. Archbishop Oscar Romero was assassinated in March of 1980. Nine years later, the Salvadoran death squads would gun down six Jesuits and two others at their residence on the campus of Central American University in San Salvador. Between 1977 and 1989, death squads and Salvadoran soldiers killed 13 priests. It is not that worthy victims do not suffer, nor that they are not deserving of our support and compassion. It is that worthy victims alone are rendered human, people like us. Unworthy victims are not. It helps, of course, when, as in Ukraine, they are white, but the missionaries murdered in El Salvador were also white and American, and yet it was not enough to shake U.S. support for the country's military regime. The mass media never explain why Andrei Sakharov is worthy, and Jose Luis Macera, he's a brilliant Uruguayan uh, mathematician who was imprisoned, is unworthy. The attention and general dichotomization occur naturally as a result of the working of the filters, but the result is the same as if a commissar had instructed the media, concentrate on the victims of enemy powers and forget about the victims of friends. Reports of the abuses of worthy victims not only pass through the filters, they may also become the basis of sustained propaganda campaigns. If the government or corporate community and the media feel that a story is useful as well as dramatic, they focus on it intensively and use it to enlighten the public. This was true, for example, of the shooting down by the Soviets of the Korean airliner KAL-007 in early September 1983. 269 passengers and crew were killed. An extended campaign of denigration of an official enemy and greatly advanced the uh, Reagan administration's arms plans. As Bernard Wurtzman noted complacently in the New York Times, August 31st, 1984, US officials assert that worldwide criticism of the Soviet handling of the crisis has strengthened the United States in its relations with Moscow. In sharp contrast, the shooting down by Israel of a Libyan civilian airliner in February 1973, 108 civilians were killed, 
left no outcry in the West, no denunciations of cold-blooded murder, no boycott. This difference in treatment was explained by the New York Times precisely on the grounds of utility in a 1973 editorial. No useful purpose is served by an acrimonious debate over the assignment of blame for the downing of a Libyan airliner in the Sinai Peninsula last week. There was a very useful purpose served by focusing on the Soviet act and a massive propaganda campaign ensued. It is impossible to hold those responsible for war crimes accountable if worthy victims are deserving of justice and unworthy victims are not. If Russia should be crippled with sanctions for invading Ukraine, which I believe it should, the United States should have been crippled with sanctions for invading Iraq, a war launched on lies and fabrications. Imagine if America's largest banks, J.P. Morgan, Chase, Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, were, like Russian banks, cut off from the international banking system. Imagine if our oligarchs, Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, who were certainly as venal as Russian oligarchs, had their assets frozen and estates and luxury yachts seized. Bezos' yacht, by the way, is the largest in the world. It cost $500 million and it is 57 feet longer than a football field. Imagine if leading political figures such as George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, along with oligarchs, were suspended, uh, were blocked from traveling under visa restrictions. Imagine if the world's biggest shipping line suspended shipments to and from the United States. Imagine if the US international media news outlets were forced off the air. Imagine if we were blocked from purchasing spare parts for our commercial airliners and our airliners were banned from European airspace. Imagine if our athletes were barred from hosting or participating in international sporting events. Imagine if our symphony conductors and opera stars were forbidden from performing unless they denounced the Iraq war and in a kind of perverted loyalty oath condemned George W. Bush. The rank hypocrisy is stunning. Some of the same officials that orchestrated the invasion of Iraq, who under, under international law war criminals, for carrying out a preemptive war, are chastising Russia for its violation of international law. The US bombing campaign of Iraqi urban centers called shock and awe saw the dropping of 3,000 bombs on civilian areas that killed over 7,000 non-combatants in the first two months of the war. Even Russia has yet to go this far. I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation that is a war crime, a Fox News host said with a straight face, to Condoleezza Rice, who served as Bush's national security advisor during the Iraq war. It is certainly against every principle of international law and international order, and that is why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions and punishments is also part of it, Rice said, and I think the world is there. Certainly, NATO is there. He's managed to unite NATO in ways I didn't think I would ever see after the end of the Cold War. Rice inadvertently made a case for why she should be put on trial with the rest of Bush's enablers. She famously justified the invasion of Iraq by stating, quote, the problem here is that there will always be some uncertainty about how quickly he can acquire nuclear weapons, but we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. 
Her rationale is no different than that peddled by the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who says the Russian invasion is being carried out to prevent Ukraine from obtaining nuclear weapons. What Russia is doing militarily in Ukraine, at least up till now, was more than matched by our own savagery in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, and Vietnam. This is an inconvenient fact the press, awash in moral posturing, will not address. No one has mastered the art of techno-war and wholesale slaughter like the US military. When atrocities leak out, such as the My Lai massacre of Vietnamese civilians or the prisoners in Abu Ghraib, the press does its duty by branding them aberrations. The truth is that these killings and abuse are deliberate. They are orchestrated at the senior levels of the military. Infantry units assisted by long-range artillery, fighter jets, heavy bombers, missiles, drones, and helicopters level vast swaths of enemy territory, killing most of the inhabitants. The US military during the invasion of Iraq from Kuwait created a six-mile-wide free-fire zone that killed hundreds, if not thousands, of Iraqis. The indiscriminate killing ignited the Iraqi insurgency. When I entered southern Iraq in the first Gulf War, it was flattened. Villages and towns were smoldering ruins. Bodies, including women and children, lay scattered on the ground. Water purification systems had been bombed. Power stations had been destroyed. Schools and hospitals had been flattened. Bridges had been obliterated. The United States military always wages war by overkill, which is why it dropped the equivalent of 640 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs on Vietnam, most actually falling on the south, where our purported Vietnamese allies, resi allies resided. It unloaded in Vietnam more than 70 million tons of herbicidal agents, three million white phosphorus rockets. White phosphorus will burn its way entirely through a body and an estimated 400,000 tons of jellied incendiary napalm. 35% of the victims, Nick Turris writes of the war, died within 15 to 20 minutes. Death from the skies, like death on the ground, was often unleashed capriciously. It was not out of the ordinary for US troops in Vietnam to blast a whole village or bombard a wide area in an effort to kill a single sniper. Vietnamese villagers, including women, children, and the elderly were often herded into tiny barbed wire enclosures known as cow cages. They were subjected to electric shocks, gang raped, and tortured by being hung upside down and beaten euphemistically called the plane ride until unconscious. Fingernails were ripped out. Fingers were dismembered. Detainees were slashed with knives. They were beaten senseless with baseball bats and waterboarded. Targeted assassinations orchestrated by CIA death squads were ubiquitous. Wholesale destruction, including of human beings to the US military, perhaps any military, is orgiastic. The ability to unleash sheets of automatic fire, hundreds of rounds of belt-fed machine gun fire, 90 millimeter tank rounds, endless grenades, mortars, and artillery shells on a village, sometimes supplemented by gigantic 2,000 
700-pound explosive projectiles fired from battleships along the coast was a perverted form of entertainment in Vietnam as it became later in the Middle East. U.S. troops litter the countryside with claymore mines, canisters of napalm, daisy cutter bombs, anti-personnel rockets, high explosive rockets, incendiary rockets, cluster bombs, high explosive shells, and iron fragmentation bombs, including the 40,000 pound bomb loads dropped by the giant B-52 <coughs> uh, Stratofortress bombers. Along with chemical defoliants and chemical gases dropped from the sky. These are our calling cards. Vast areas are designated free fire zones, a term later changed to the more neutral sounding specified strike zone, where everyone in these zones is considered an enemy, even the elderly, women, and children. Soldiers and Marines who attempt to report war crimes risk their lives. On September 12, 1969, Nick Terse writes in his book, Kill Anything That Moves, The Real American War in Vietnam, George Chunko sent a letter to his parents explaining how his unit had entered a home that had a young Vietnamese woman, four young children, an elderly man, and a military-age male. It appeared the younger man was AWOL from the South Vietnamese Army. The young man was stripped naked and tied to a tree. His wife fell to her knees and begged the soldiers for mercy. The prisoner, Chunko wrote, was ridiculed, slapped around, and had mud rubbed into his face. He was then executed. A day, late, a day after he wrote the letter, Chunko was killed. Chunko's parents, Terse writes, suspected that their son had been murdered to cover up the crime. I carry within me death, the smell of decayed and bloated corpses, the cries of the wounded, the shrieks of children, the sound of gunfire, the deafening blast, the fear, the stench of cordite, the humiliation that comes when you surrender to terror and beg for life, the loss of comrades and friends, and then the aftermath, the long alienation, the numbness, the nightmares, the lack of sleep, the inability to connect to all living things, even to those we love the most, the regret, the repugnant lies mouthed around us about honor and heroism and glory, the absurdity, the waste, the futility. It is only the broken and the maimed that know war. And we ask for forgiveness. We seek redemption. We carry on our back this awful cross of death, for the essence of war is death, and the weight of it digs into our shoulders and eats away at our souls. We drag it through life, up hills and down hills, along the roads, into the most intimate recesses of our lives. It never leaves us. Those who know us best know that there is something unspeakable and evil many of us harbor within us. This evil is intimate. It is personal. We do not speak its name. It is the evil of things done and things left undone. It is the evil of war. War is captured in the long, vacant stares, in the silences, in the trembling fingers, in the memories most of us keep buried deep within us, in the tears. 
It is impossible to portray war. Narratives, even anti-war narratives, make the irrational rational. They make the incomprehensible comprehensible. They make the illogical logical. They make the despicable beautiful. All words and images, all discussions, all films, all evocations of war, good or bad, are an obscenity. There is nothing to say. There are only the scars and wounds that we carry within us, those we cannot articulate, the horror, the horror. I wander through life with this deadness of war within me. There is no escape. There is no peace. All of us who have been to war know an awful truth, ghosts, strangers in a strange land. Who are our brothers and sisters? Who is our family? Whom have we become? We have become those whom we once despised and killed. We have become the enemy. Our mother is the mother grieving over her murdered child and we murdered this child in a mud-walled village of Afghanistan, in a sand-filled cemetery in Fallujah or Mariupol. Our father is the father lying on a pallet in a hut, paralyzed by the blast from an iron fragmentation bomb. Our sister lives in poverty in a refugee camp outside Kabul, widowed, desperately poor, raising her children alone. Our brother, yes, our brother, is the Taliban, the Iraqi insurgent, Al-Qaeda, and Russian soldiers. And he has an automatic rifle, and he kills, and he is becoming us. War is always the same plague. It imparts the same deadly virus. It teaches us to deny another's humanity, worth, being, and to kill or be killed. There are days I wish I was whole. I wish I could put down this cross. I envy those who in their innocence believe in the innate goodness of America and the righteousness of war and celebrate what we know is despicable. Sometimes it makes me wish for death, for the peace of it. But I know the awful truth, as James Baldwin wrote, that people who shut their eyes to reality simply invite their own destruction, and anyone who insists on remaining in a state of innocence long after that innocence is dead turns himself into a monster. And I would rather be maimed and broken and in pain than a monster. I will never be healed. I cannot promise that it will be better. I cannot impart to you the cheerful and childish optimism that is the curse of America. I can only tell you to stand up, to pick up your cross, to keep moving. I can only tell you that you must always defy the forces that eat away at you, at the nation, this plague of war. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, a long ways from home, a long ways from home. It is death I defy, not my own death, but the vast enterprise of death, the dark primeval lusts for power and personal wealth, 
the hyper-masculine language of war and patriotism used to justify the slaughter of the weak and the innocent and to mock justice. I do not use these words. We cannot flee from evil. Some of us who have been to war have tried through drink and drugs and self-destructiveness. Evil is always with us. It is because we know evil, our own evil, that we do not let go, do not surrender. It is because we know violence that we are nonviolent. And we know that it is not about us. War taught us that. It is about the other, lying by the side of the road. It is about reaching down in defiance of creeds and oaths, in defiance of religion and nationality, and lifting our enemy up. All acts of healing and love and the defiance of war is an affirmation of love. Allow us to shout out to the vast powers of the universe that however broken we are, we are not helpless. However much we despair, we are not without hope. However weak we feel, we will always, always, always resist. Thank you. So Ruth is going to fill in for our cherished friend Megan, who we've all lost in our mourning today. So if you have any questions, let her know and she'll. And those books are, uh, are all of the proceeds are going to sanctuary. Ruth is going to make sure they're short. You don't want to mess with Ruth. It's not a good idea. Hey, Chris. Hey, everyone. You're not here. So my name is Iyad. I'm a uh, Palestinian LGBT activist in the area. Um, actually was a national activist as well. But I'm starting to come back to that national stuff soon. Um, so basically my question is, um, Your speech was amazing. We worked together, all that stuff, yada, yada. But um, have, you, have you ever thought about maybe, maybe doing a podcast series and, and really delve into from my side? In, in terms of the Palestinian side, in terms of, no, in, in terms of To, to get it from our lens, I know, I know we got Edward Said and we have our own voices, but I think it would be really interesting to see what makes, like what, what can allies here can understand why is there gonna be a third Antifada soon? Why Palestinians had enough of the bull crap? Well, let me, let me address that. I mean, first of all, I spent seven years in the Middle East 
much of my life in Gaza and reported daily on yes. Gaza. Uh, secondly, I'm a very strong supporter of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, um, which is a swift way to get you banned uh, at, from most university campuses. That's why Cornell West was denied tenure at Harvard. Um, uh, so I, I speak, as you know, quite uh, often on the Palestine-Israel conflict and write about it quite often, but I'm not there anymore. Uh, but I carry that experience with me, and I'm, you know, that's why I'm so fierce in terms of confronting the Israel lobby, because I've seen the bodies that litter, you know, and the lies. I mean, the, the flagrant lying on the part of the IDF where I've been in refugee camps, Hani Yunus, and other places, and they claim to have carried out an airstrike, a surgical airstrike, they always call it, against a bomb-making factory. And I've been on the street not long afterwards, which has been completely obliterated and seen the corpses, including the children. So um, that I don't shy away from that. I, I have a show. Uh, I had a show on RT, and that got shut down. But I have a show on the real news, uh, everything is on chrisedges.substack.com. It all goes there, but it's on the real news, and then I have a column that comes out uh, every Monday. So, and I write on it a lot. Yeah, but I write on a lot of different stuff. So, activists look to him. So, if you want to know how to get involved and, and, and have a good context of what to do, go to his website. too personal, but what keeps you particularly a Christian um, and not, say, a deist when a lot of the people that you mentioned see what we're doing as a Christian crusade or they... they oh, well, you know, I wrote a book about those people. I, I'm familiar. It's called American Fascists, uh, The Christian Right and the War in America. Uh, well, they're heretics. I mean, this is in the failure of the liberal church to call them out for who they are has been one of the great failings of liberal Christianity. You don't need to go to three, spend three years at Harvard Divinity School, as I did, to figure out that Jesus didn't come to make you rich, uh, or that Jesus wouldn't bless the dropping of iron fragmentation bombs on the Muslim world. I mean, and, and uh, these people, I think they, they're, when I wrote the book, it was quite controversial. I mean, even Harvard Divinity School w wouldn't let me come speak because they were still trying to reach out to these people. And of course, by doing that, they were giving them a, a religious legitimacy they should never have had. Uh, but we saw the connecting tissue on January 6th was this Christian fascism. And, and they filled the ideological void of Donald Trump. So it wasn't just Pence and Barr, by the way, as a charter member of this group, DeVos, uh, Pompeo, and others. But there were hundreds of people recruited out of Liberty University, Patrick Henry Law School, uh, and uh, and and the, one of the last acts Trump did before he left office was essentially uh, uh, lift the protections for civil servants so he could pack the bureaucracy with these people. It, Trump, whoever comes back, Trump, Pompeo, whatever Trump clone comes back, it's going to be much worse than it was because they will come back with a vengeance and shred any pretense of democratic norms. So I... I, I didn't use the word fascist lightly. I think they're fascists. I, and the last thing I did before I published my book was visit 
uh, Fritz Stern, uh, who left Germany and great scholar at Columbia on fascism, left when he was 18, wrote The Politics of Cultural Despair, and then Robert Paxton, who wrote The Anatomy of Fascism, the great Vichy scholar. I spent hours with them trying to have them argue me out of using that word. But I think they are fascists, yes. I appreciate Christian fascists. I think that is a good delineation. That's who they are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, thank you. I appreciate the work that you do, um, and I appreciate your uh, message that we not glorify war and violence, but kind of following on that note, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we should prepare to protect our communities from the right wing who is no longer even pretending at, at not wanting a civil war and not moving towards civil war. What, what should that resistance look like? What, you know, especially those of us who don't want violence and maybe can't really fight, right. like what should we be doing? So the only weapon that we have to break them is the strike. That's where all of our energy has to go. Strike, strike, strike. I have watched national strikes bring down governments. That is, and of course, the, the oligarchy, the billionaire class has worked overtime to break unions and pass a variety of anti-strike laws, not just the Taft-Hartley Act, uh, but the Railroad Act, because of the, uh, the, and the railroad workers are now negotiating a bullshit contract. Um, but Biden, he doesn't want to do it because it will expose who he is, but he can instantly declare, he has the legal means to instantly declare a railroad strike illegal. But that would shut down 40% of commerce. That's, those, that's where all our energy has to go. So I teach in a prison, I was teaching there last night, actually teaching the Gulag Archipelago and not the abridged version. Um, and they're amazing students. I mean, I'm not going to get into mass incarceration. I wrote a book called Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison that talks about it. But uh, so if my students get out with a 3.1, they matriculate to Rutgers. And what they've been doing, almost all of them are black, is helping to organize the service workers at Rutgers. Now, there are people there who voted for Trump. They're not, into the, they're not into the boutique activism of political correctness. They recognize the economic forces that dominate poor whites and blacks. Uh, and that's it. I wrote a column called Strike, Strike, Strike. That is where all of our energy has to go. That's our only hope because nobody within this system of what Sheldon Wolin calls inverted totalitarianism is going to save us. Thank um, you. So yeah. So anything you can do, Amazon, Walmart, we got to organize Walmart. I have, a que I have a question about your assertion that war is the ultimate evil. I, I guess I have a problem with that as an abstraction since are you going to equate the Vietnamese and the Cubans to the United States empire? No, I, I'm not equating those who resist empire to empire, but I am saying that once you engage in violence, you're not saved from the poison of violence. I mean, look at the Cuban revolution. So what brought down Batista? It wasn't Fidel. It was a national strike. It took the Barbudos four days to get to Havana. And then they rewrote the history because they had the guns. 
and they, they created the FOCO theory, which was a disastrous theory and led many, many insurgent groups to their death in Latin America, including Che in Bolivia, he believed his own propaganda. So, uh, you know, violence is often part of an insurgency, but the actual, if you read Crane Brinton or the other Davies or the other theorists on revolution, they make a couple really important points, and that is that no revolution succeeds until significant sectors of the foot soldiers who defend the elites defect, i.e. they will not protect the elites. This is what happened in Iran. The day the Shah left, the head of the military said, we won't defend this regime anymore. It was over. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's just a rewriting of history. You know, the, the mechanisms that bring down these regimes are very rarely, I mean, violence may be a factor, but it is finally not violence that brings them down. Well, as a, a retired railroad worker, I appreciate your support for a railroad strike, and I hope that you stick yeah, to I that. Yeah, I hope they, and we, yeah. I mean, because that will have a significant impact. Hi, Chris. Thank you so much for what you do. <laughs> um, if I may make a brief comment and a question real quick. Uh, I was just wanted to say on the uh, subject of one of your recent interviews with Roger Waters um, and your humility, you know, that you uh, feel of yourself, you know, m lacking uh, musical, you know, being musically adept. <laughs> I just wanted to say as a musician myself, I mean, even though your words may not carry melody, they certainly do carry music and Thanks. rhythm. And I just want to thank you for that. Thank you. And think that you should feel very proud of that. <laughs> um, and for my question, I recently was able to uh, ask a question of uh, Danny Haifong of the uh, Left Lens on YouTube and uh, Black Agenda Report, and I did mention you in my question. I just wanted to uh, get your opinion from yourself uh, regarding that. It was in regards to hope and the feelings of hope, because uh, I do feel that with what you face and what you talk about, uh, just how heavy everything is, how, how brutal everything is, uh, it seems as though there isn't a whole lot of hope out there other than what you talk about, you know, from what, from what I gather, you know, other than voting for very specifically, you know, socialist politicians, people like uh, Shama Sawant, or uh, like you just talked about, striking, you know, labor, labor movements, uh, unionization, strikes. I'm just curious, uh, like, is there anything else that you feel hopeful for that you feel that we'd be able to, you know, be able to actually achieve so like a, a global socialist uh, unity? I don't have hope, not hope with a capital H. Uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons I like sanctuary. I mean, I think that the problem with the left is that it severed itself from the oppressed. That's why I'm in a prison, I was in there last night, twice a week. And I've been in there since 2010. And as you know, once you start that work, it mushrooms. So they get out, you know their families. I spent two years on a court case on a guy who was sentenced for a crime he didn't commit, he was illiterate, forced to sign a confession, not uncommon in inner cities. Uh, he, he was sentenced as an adult at 14 and not eligible to go before a parole board until he was 70 years old. He has no money, he has no parents. He was an orphan, actually, living in an abandoned house in Camden, per capita, the poorest city in the United States. Well, that would, took a tremendous amount of energy. I was his guardian, in essence. I went to the court. I had to get it, they, even if we got him released under Miller, Juveniles who are sentenced as adults 
can go back to trial. Um, but it wasn't easy. And then they, even if they agreed to his release, they wouldn't release him unless he had an address. So I had to raise $20,000. I had to rent an apartment in Newark. Uh, and then my garage became a storehouse. He didn't have any clothes. He had nothing. Everything all donated by formerly incarcerated, my students. And uh, we got him out. I can live on that for, it doesn't change the world, I suppose. But I think that, the, the, you know, if you don't come out of that prison angry, then you don't have a heart. And I think the problem, and, and what I always did as a reporter of Central America, Gaza, Sarajevo, is I always put myself in communities that were slated for obliteration, like the black community in the United States. And, um, and that's what gives me hope. I mean, with Lawrence, brilliant student, uh, brilliant. And uh, I taught a class called Conquest, uh, we read Open Veins of Latin America, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and CLR James's Black Jacobins on the Haitian uh, Revolution. And um, he waited, he was one of my very few A pluses, he waited till everyone left the room, and he said, I, I know I'm gonna die in this prison, but I work as hard as I do because one day I'm gonna be a teacher like you. I can live on that for a really long time. Uh, and, and one other story is, I, I am ordained, I don't kind of wear it on my sleeve, um, but so I, when I went to the court, they don't tell you. I mean, uh, when the, you're, you know, the order, they don't tell us anyway, maybe they tell the lawyers, not the people sitting there, we didn't know. So I went at 10 and it's four in the afternoon, I was wearing a clerical collar to uh, essentially be the person responsible for Lawrence upon his release. And uh, so the, at the end of the day, I'm, one of the only ones left, of course, and uh, the sheriff's deputy opens the door to let him out, he's completely shackled, and says to Lawrence, who's that effing minister? And Lawrence goes, that's my pastor. And Lawrence is Muslim. <laughs> and that is why I do what I do, that's what gives me hope, um, so it's not abstract. And I think that if you're not connected with communities of oppressed, of the oppressed, then you very quickly become cynical. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm not romantic about communities of the oppressed, I lived among them. Uh, but uh, that's, that's where we have to reconnect and find our own authenticity. And, and just let me say as a white male American, uh, you learn, I, 20 years I spent overseas among Latin Americans and Palestinians, et cetera, Privilege is blindness. That's what privilege does, it blinds you. And our job, who come, from, especially men, who come from the privileged class, and I speak Arabic, is to work as hard as we can to strip away that privilege. But there will always be that divide between you and them, i.e. that those aspects of the life that you just can't see because of privilege. If you honor that divide, you can have a real relationship with oppressed people. And, uh, you know, I love my students the way Megan loves her students. Uh, my students just happen to be locked up. Um, but they're amazing people. And um, they've turned their cells into libraries. They're what Gramsci calls organic intellectuals. Uh, and now they're getting out, thank God. Uh, 
Lawrence is working as a community organizer in Brooklyn. He's graduated, he got out and finished summa cum laude from Rutgers. So, so much of my energy goes into these personal battles. And I'm not naive enough to tell you that it changes the system. And perhaps in the end, we only change the world one person at a time. But it gives me tremendous hope. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, thank you, Chris, and uh, thank you, Media Sanctuary, because we live in the age of deplatforming, and uh, you know Julian Assange deplatformed, <laughs> Chris Hedges over and over deplatformed, and thank you for uh, you know uh, Substack, and continuing to put out your marvelous work. Thanks. Thanks. Hello, thank you, uh, Chris, for your moving speech, and thank you to the sanctuary for hosting it. I have a really quick question. I'm wondering if you're familiar with Juan Bosch's Pentagonism. It was a book written in 1967, came out before Pentagon capitalism by a few years. If so, uh, if you have any thoughts on that or on I, Bosch. I, I know it. I don't think I've read it. I'm getting so old, I reread books. I'm teaching <laughs> Gulag Archipelago, which, of course, I've already read. And I'm reading it going, oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember this really sad. So I know the book. I'm not sure I've, I've read it. You know, there was Fulbright, Pentagon Capitalism. What's that great yeah. Fulbright book, right? Melman, yeah, Pentagon well, Capitalism. Well, Melman I've read, Seymour Melman. Right. But also, it was at Fulbright. One of the senators wrote a really blistering book on, I think it's called Pentagon Capitalism or something like that. Or the, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah. Well, I think it's uh, really pertinent to, to... Yeah, of course, because... Yeah they've taken over. I mean, right. you know, and, and Arnold Tombe and other historians write about the death of empire. They'd say it's unchecked militarism. Right. I yeah. studied classics. I mean, what was the end of Rome? It was a one million man army. You know, Praetorian Guard was auctioning off the position of emperor. They hollow the country out from the inside. This is, of course, Melman is the great scholar who did, perm he did a permanent war economy and then the other great book. But he, yeah. he's really good on this, yeah. Thank you. Hello, Chris. I'm uh, Joe Lombardo. I'm um, one of the founding members of Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace locally, and I'm the national coordinator of the United National Anti-War Coalition, which incidentally is um, doing about 80 actions all across the country this week and all across Canada, and I bet you didn't see it in the newspaper. Um, we had one here, too. We had one in Bethlehem. Bethlehem Neighbors for Peace co-sponsored it. And there's a couple of people in this room that were there, but most of the people in this room who are better anti-war were not there. In fact, I know you weren't. Um, it's an important thing to do, because I agree with you, Chris, of uh, the idea of a strike. But I know to build a strike as a labor activist, I'm also a member of Troy Area Labor Council, a labor activist all my life, that you have to build a union to make a strike. Yeah, of course. And to make a political strike, you have to build a movement. And the anti-war movement is trying to do that. 
But for it to be effective, it has to be a mass movement, the kind that we had during the Vietnam War, which did play a role in helping change the minds of soldiers in the field so they didn't become, they were no longer um, uh, fighters um, and um, helped in, in that war. So um, I'd urge people to do that. But do you have any ideas on how we build such a movement? It seems. Well, we very difficult we and very to, because hard Because our movements this were consciously destroyed starting in the early 70s. I mean, they, the Powell memo became the kind of blueprint for it, but they, they knew what they were doing. And, and this is what Sheldon Wolin's great book, uh, Democracy Incorporated, is about. It's a, what John Ralston Saul calls a slow-motion coup d'etat, corporate coup d'etat. It's over. They've won. So they're, they're, they're the Democratic, they're, the ruling... The traditional ruling party is now one party, so all the establishment Republicans have now joined with the Democrats uh, fighting off the neo-fascists, um, but of course they're responsible for the rise of neo-fascism. Uh, you have Robert Reich calling for Liz Cheney to run for president. I don't even know where to go with that. I mean, Liz Cheney is repugnant on many levels. Um, and uh, so... Um, the, the, it reminds me of, of 1932 in Germany. I mean, it's like, you know, Biden's kind of like Bruning. It's, it's about recreating the ancien regime that nobody wants. Uh, and, of course, they were frightened, as they should be, of the Nazis, and we should be frightened of these proto-fascist forces arrayed against us. But by refusing to deal with the actual structural inequities and injustices, and, of course, things getting worse uh, with inflation and everything else, uh, then you guarantee the rise of these political monstrosities, as I saw in the former Yugoslavia. And, um, uh, and when they come back now, this is going to be very, very, very ugly. Very ugly. So uh, we have to rebuild a militant left, and the Democratic Party is not our friend. Thank you. is Archie. I stand on street corners with a sign that says stand against racism. It's my part-time job. <laughs> I came here to uh, kind of challenge this notion that war was the great evil, but you circled around to where I live. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, you say when they come back. It's, it feels like it's almost guaranteed that they are. Is there a way? Will voting stop them from coming back? Is that the barrier that we have to put well, up now, or what? I mean, in America, you don't vote for what you want. You vote against what you're afraid of. That's it. Nobody, and, and that's also true for a lot of people who voted for Trump. Um, we, 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 you know, uh, look, if, to quote Emma Goldman, if voting was that effective, it'd be illegal. Uh, I don't waste my time with voting. Um, and even if you were to vote Bernie Sanders into office, which would never happen, I mean, they do, did to Bernie what they did, the Labor Party did to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, he's powerless unless we have movements. I mean, politics is a game of fear. And, uh, and for my book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which was written out of the poorest pockets of America with a great cartoonist, Joe Sacco, we were in West Virginia with Ken Heckler, 
who'd been in the House. And he was one of the last politicians from West Virginia that wasn't uh, bought and owned by the coal lobby. Uh, in fact, pushed through the black lung legislation. And he told me a great story that uh, Nixon was reticent to sign it. And he called a press conference and said, if Nixon doesn't sign it by tonight, there'll be a nationwide coal strike and this entire country will shut down. And he said, I didn't really know if there would be a coal strike, but Nixon signed it that night. That's how it works. Um, we have that power. Um, and they, they, you know, they do two things. And, and uh, you know, I, my last column was called They Crush Our Song for a Reason. They, they keep us ignorant of where we come from, who we are, the struggles. We had the bloodiest labor wars in US history. Hundreds of American workers were murdered. Thousands were blacklisted. Uh, and they, they gave us, not Roosevelt, they gave us the eight-hour workday and the weekend and the end of child labor. That's what they gave us. So we, and, and they have really made war uh, against the one mechanism we have to fight back and that is organized labor and the strike. And I think one of the important things about organized labor uh, is that it, it, in, in, it, it has within it an educational component. So let's say you work at Walmart and you support Trump, but if you organize, you're gonna very quickly begin to find out where the malevolent power centers are. And, uh, and then of course, good labor movements. I mean, you read Emma Goldman's autobiography, they're working 12 hours a day in sweatshops in the Lower East Side, and then they're going to Yiddish anarchist groups all night long. There is that, it's why I teach in the prison. I mean, frankly, that's why I'm there. And uh, I have a lot of hope. I mean, I'm watching my students get out and do amazing things. I got 11 of my students are now working for Industrial Areas Foundation as, la as uh, community organizers, and they are damn effective community organizers. They come out of the hood, they're black, uh, they've been in prison. Also, you don't want to mess with these guys. You do not mess with them. <laughs> and I love them to death because they're real intellectuals. And I have uh, two friends of mine. I was the other day. I have them come to Princeton. Both brilliant. One of them's, he's so tall. He's six, he says he's 6'9", but I'm sure he's taller. Well, maybe I'm really short. I don't know. But uh, this guy graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers. He got the first... Harry S. Truman Fellowship of any Rutgers student in over a decade. He went to the University of Cambridge in the UK and got a master's degree in philosophy. And I'm with him walking down the street with another guy, and they call it in the prison the 400 Club because they all bench over 400. And I said, I'm sure somebody's saying, what are those two guys doing with that dweeby white guy? And I said, but I know what they don't. You all go home and read, and you're nerds, just like me. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I had a comment. So you had mentioned um, that something about war and how it's kind of showing us who we are and asking maybe how we've gotten there. And I think that we really need to study what Americans have done to black and indigenous people, because it's not very different, so it's kind of like, this is who we've always been, and we really need to really research that history and know it, and then we can fight it. Well, better. you are exactly right. I was 20 years overseas. What is empire? Empire is the external expression of white supremacy. That's what it is. 
And my closest friend who we lost a couple years ago was the great theologian James Cone, father of black liberation theology. Now, we had very different lives. James grew up in segregated Arkansas. As Cornel West said, there are only two great black intellectuals in America in the 20th century arose from dirt poor poverty, and that is James Cone and Richard Wright. And, but I think what we bonded is that we, he saw the evil of empire internally, and I saw the same monster, you're right, externally, because the, it's the same racist language. Remember, we're always uh, saving people of color. It's the same violence. In fact, all the tools that are used to suppress uh, poor people of color in the United States are tested overseas. The militarized drones, the militarized police, the wholesale surveillance, the torture, all of it. And then it migrates back to the quote-unquote homeland. And Thucydides writes about this. He said that what destroyed Athenian democracy when it became an empire is that these are Thucydides' words, the tyranny that Athens imposed on others it finally imposed on itself. And that's exactly what's happening. The military industrial complex has hollowed the country out from the inside, along with deindustrialization and everything else, Troy, just walk out the door. And, and so what, you, what you've done is rupture what the sociologist Emile Durkheim calls social bonds. So work, a, a sense of community, a place, all of that connect you to the society. And they actually, those social bonds are forms of control because you have a vested stake. But when those social bonds are ruptured, then you need other forms of social control. And those forms are militarized police that kill with impunity and prisons. We have 25% of the world's prison population and we are less than 5% of the world's population. Those are the two primary mechanisms, and I would throw in evictions. So lock up the men and evict the women and children. Because you can't create a stable community that way. So you are right. They're, they're, they're the same beast. Same beast. I have a follow-up question. Um, so you said that um, like the end of democracy in Greece was uh, they kind of did themselves in. So could that be a tactic to survive the stupidity, if you will, and try to um, work towards a future once that caves in on itself? Well, I mean, empires collapse in different ways, and it can be very ugly. Uh, and the way it's going, because the popular movements are so weak. I mean, if you look at the 1930s, and there is, I think, strong analogies to the 1930s. We had strong and militant labor, and especially the Communist Party, which we have completely written out of our history. Now they've done quite a good job of eradicating that. And without that significant pressure point, then you're much more susceptible to fascism, uh, which of course happened in Italy and happened in uh, in Germany. So I'm worried because the, the mechanism we have to exert popular pressure, and remember, and this is why Howard Zinn is so important, is that the system was designed by white, as a closed system, by white male slaveholders. And every opening in American society 
was paid for with rivers of American blood. The suffragists, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the labor movement. Abolition. Yeah. So, uh, and, and, and we had to fight to open that space. They didn't give it to us. And uh, they were so frightened by the rise of popular movements in the 1960s that they quite consciously set out uh, to reclaim power. Max Weber actually writes about this. He said that's why politics is a vocation because as soon as you turn your back, all of those capitalist forces will regroup to take back what you've gained. And that's precisely what's happened. Thank you. All right.